Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Festival Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Myanmar Tragedy from our 2018 programme. Freelance journalist Francis Wade has worked extensively in Southeast Asia and contributed to The Guardian, Al Jazeera English, Asia Times Online, The Democratic Voice of Burma, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. In his riveting book, Myanmar's Enemy Within, Buddhist Violence and the Making of a Muslim Other, he reveals the deep fissures that have spurred mass violence and refugee flight. The book has garnered praise from the BBC's Fergal Keane, who lauded Wade for his moral courage and intellectual insight, and author Pankaj Mishra, who praised its historical depth and intellectual acuity. Wade speaks with Hannah Brown in a session supported by our Platinum patrons, Dame Rosie and Michael Horton. We hope you enjoy it. Very warm welcome everyone to this session, Myanmar Tragedy with Francis Wade. I'm Hannah Brown, News Assignments Editor at TVNZ. And a few quick details before we begin. Please check your phone is off or on silent. With social media, uh, the festival encourages social media within sessions, but just be discreet. There'll be 15 minutes for audience questions at the end, so uh, feel free to take notes on the things that interest you. And finally, special thanks to our Platinum patrons, Dame Rosie and Michael Horton, for uh, their support of this event. So, to introductions. Journalist Francis Wade is the author of this book, Myanmar's Enemy Within. Buddhist Violence and the Making of a Muslim Other, which came out 10 days before the ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya people began in Myanmar last year. He's a Southeast Asian specialist who's written for Time, The Guardian, Washington Post, and the New York Review of Books. The Economist review of this book described it as vital to understanding what went so disastrously wrong so let's find out. Welcome, Francis. Thank you. Can we start with perhaps the most baffling question? Aung San Suu Kyi has for our lifetimes been this dignified, seemingly selfless, pro-democracy figure, a Nobel laureate and freedom fighter. And now she's finally in power, albeit shared with the military, and ethnic cleansing's happening on her watch. So what happened? Blimey. Um, well, you know, there's this, there's this assumption that, uh, you know, we knew, we predominantly knew Suu Kyi as a political prisoner, as an icon of um, democracy, human rights, who'd sacrificed 15 years of her life um, for the struggle to bring about democracy to Myanmar. Um, and, you know, during that time, she was never really tested. I think that's the problem. We assumed that 
She would hold fast to these ideals of nonviolence, of democracy. She wrote spiritedly um, for you know, the introduction of a democratic society where all minorities would be equal and so on. Um, but we never really had a chance to test her as a leader. And I think there's a cautionary tale in Myanmar that you know, people throw their support behind these icons, these figures. Um, and we invest so much of our hope in them. Um, we project our sort of desires onto them, um, our wishes for, um, you know, an ideal society. Um, but we never really, yeah, we never really tested her as a leader. And now that she's come to power, she's become, I think she's certainly baffled a lot of people, hugely disappointed a lot of people as well. Um, but the main sort of emotion is battle, uh, bafflement. And it speaks to these, uh, this idea that, yeah, we make assumptions about people that we hold um, up on a pedestal. We believe that they are, you know, that they will stick to the ideals expressed in, um, you know, their time in opposition. But once they come to power, they make these, sacrifice, <clears throat> these sacrifices. And Myanmar has a very strong, forceful, vocal Buddhist nationalist lobby group that makes up a huge part of her constituency. Um, that hadn't really been evident while she was in opposition. You know, we saw the opposition as a pro-democracy movement. We saw it as a sort of virtuous society united in opposition to a military. We didn't know that these very volatile um, fault lines exist within that society. And it's only since the transition to democracy began that those fault lines have come to the surface. And we've seen Suu Kyi, you know, become a politician. She's had to navigate those fault lines herself. Um, and it's produced a scenario in which, you know, this vaunted icon has turned out to be one who capitulates to the military. She toes the military line when it comes to the Rohingya. She refuses to come to their defense. Um, and it's broken this illusion that she is, you know, a sort of, virtuous heroine um, and I think the problem is as much of our making as it is of hers you know we created this idea of who she was what was she what she would be like once in power and that's been shattered now so has she even uttered the word Rohingya yet because I know for a long time she she didn't no she instructed her cabinet and diplomats to call them the Muslims of Rakhine State so um, why is that so loaded because, I mean, this, the question of who the Rohingya are really sort of um, underpins the violence. It's that contestation over their identity um, that has caused so much of the furor in Western Myanmar and in broader Myanmar society. The narrative goes, if you're um, a Rohingya, Rohingya will tell you that you know, they've existed in the country for generations and more, that they are indigenous, um, but this Buddhist nationalist lobby group, which seems to now make up a majority of society in Myanmar, it's a majorita majoritarian sentiment, that sees the Rohingya as this community of illegal interlopers who have come in from Bangladesh, settled on the land. Um, their agenda is one of expansionism of their community of Islam more broadly. Um, and you know, there's this idea that 
this community has come in, they're claiming an, ind an indigenous status because they want citizenship. They'll then use that platform to go about sort of pursuing their project of Islamization, of taking resources that belong to um, indigenous Myanmar peoples. Um, and so this narrative has developed that sees Rohingya as a sort of political construct, that it's an identity in pursuit of a specific political agenda, which is Islamic conquest. Um, obviously, we, you know, from the outside, we see this community that's, um, you know, essentially quarantined in a remote corner of the country. Um, it's subjected to control measures unlike any other community in Myanmar, and that's already in a heavily police state. Um, yet this narrative within the country has become so forceful and it's been pushed so much by monks, by politicians, by activists, that it's really become, I think, a staple of the imagination, of the public imagination in Myanmar. Um, and yeah, it gives rise to this belief that the Rohingya is you know, a fake identity. Mm. It's ironic because there's never going to be a better recruiting ground than a um, refugee camp across the border in Bangladesh. Exactly. I mean, talk about sort of creating you know, the, the monster that you so sort of fear, you so despise. Um, there's now a community of a million, nearly a million Rohingya in Bangladesh. 300,000 who fled previous pogroms, um, 700,000 have joined more recently. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's, you know, a happy hunting ground for recruiters. Hmm. So Muslims are, they've been in Myanmar for centuries. Who are the Rohingya and where did they come from and why are they in Myanmar? Well, there's been recorded Muslim presence in Western Myanmar, um, where this violence has taken place since the ninth century. Um, and that's recognized by many in Myanmar. There's no real dispute that Muslims have existed in the country for a long time. Um, but it's this community of Rohingya who are claiming this false identity. And they're, you know, they've become, I suppose, the, the symbol of a globally expansionist Islam. And this narrative that's developed that sees the Rohingya as a sort of false entity, a fake you know, community that's setting about uh, to conquer the country, um, to conquer Rakhine State, to take its resources. Um, you know, that can easily be placed in this sort of universal narrative of an expanding Islam. So there's this conspiracy that begins beyond Myanmar's borders um, and that threatens to penetrate deep within them. Mm. And unless that border with Bangladesh is protected, and unless you know, a movement arises that um, promotes the sort of centrality of Buddhism to Myanmar society, unless that's vigorously promoted, then what they call the Western Gate, which is the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh, that will fall and Islam will sweep like a tide across Myanmar. Mm. And that's, you know, that's the narrative that's developed in the country. And you see it being pushed by, um, as I said, sort of monks, activists, politicians, and so on. And it's not being restrained by any institution of power in the country. Mm. So it's interesting that this has, been, this has been bubbling along for obviously a long time and, and building, but it's really come to a head in parallel with uh, the first democratic elections. Mm -hmm. Um, that we've had in a long time in Myanmar. Why is that? 
Well, you know, you have to remember that Myanmar underwent nearly half a century of military rule, and before that, about 120 years of colonial rule. Um, so it's been under, you know, one sort of occupation or another um, for a very long period. And both colonial rule and military rule, you know, had the effect of, I think, stripping a lot of the agency of um, Burmese, of people of Myanmar. Um, and once you're... You know, once, the, once a democratization process comes about, once a transition away from authoritarian rule comes about, it's a chance to, um, I suppose, you know, exercise agency. Um, and I think that's certainly be, been the case. It's also a chance for nationalist politicians who are kind of jockeying for new positions of power in a transitioning society. Um, after also having sort of, you know, half a century of rule in which they were denied um, any sort of position of power. Once you get this cocktail of human agency being allowed to be exercised, politicians who see incentives um, for, I suppose, fermenting violence along ethnic or religious lines, once that comes together, then it becomes a kind of, um, you know, uh, a situation in which violence, I think, is only ever around the corner. And when, when the first elections happened in 2010, in late 2010, we had this flurry of new political parties emerging, many of which uh, ostensibly represented particular ethnic groups. Um, and again, Myanmar had these fault lines um, that ran along sort of ethnic identity or religious identity that I don't think, you know, anyone had really appreciated, any outsiders at least. And I'd been working on Myanmar for sort of three years before the first eruption of violence happened between Rakhine um, Buddhist and Muslim Rohingya in 2012. And I hadn't really you know, understood how volatile these fault lines were. Um, and I think it's in that process of democratization, of change, of rapid flux, when there's a huge amount of uncertainty in which breeds anxiety that provides a very, uh, you know, provides a sort of foundation for violence along identity lines. And we certainly had Rakhine politicians before the first wave of violence in 2012, very publicly agitating against Rohingya. Mm -hmm. um, and it allows, you know, it provides an opportunity for politicians who represent particular ethnic groups to rally their own constituencies around them. You know, they raise the spectre of a fearsome community within their um, own sort of broader community, that there is this enemy within. Um, once you sort of peddle that idea again and again and again, then it, you know, it causes huge anxiety amongst your own constituency, and that causes them to rally closer to you and that ostensibly translates into more votes. Mm. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's ideological reasons for wanting um, the Rohingya out, that they are this community of interlopers. There's also real strategy involved. It's politically profitable to ferment violence during a transition. For who? Well, good question. I mean, there's, there's, uh, 
there are numerous interest groups in Myanmar, political and religious interest groups, that I think see see violence or at least see that uh, fear, that anxiety within the populace as something that can be exploited. Um, and the obvious, you know, the obvious entity is the military. It feels that its power is waning. Um, it fears that its, you know, its position, its authority is going to be diluted by the transition, by a civilian government in ascension. Um, and we've seen since the violence began in August last year quite an unprecedented level of support for the military. And this is a military that had long been, you know, derided by the population, by the vast majority, if not all of the population. They had been seen as the sort of number one nefarious institution in Myanmar society. All of a sudden, this militant group emerges within the Rohingya. They attack police outposts. That comes on the back of, you know, six, seven years of intensive propaganda that seeks to set up the Rohingya as a malevolent crusading force. And suddenly, this campaign of ethnic cleansing begins, and it seems as if the majority of the population rallies behind the military um, and its campaign of violence. Um, and it's been quite, you know, for someone who's been watching the country for uh, nine years or so, I haven't seen that level of support ever. And I hadn't imagined um, things would turn out quite like this. Mm. And there have been, you know, public demonstrations, marches um, in support of the military. And this is amongst a population or from a population that's been oppressed by the military for so long. Mm. It's quite remarkable. Um, yeah, it's very savvy sort of politicking. So this is your first book. Yeah. Why did you see this topic, why did you choose this topic as the important one for your first book? And, and what's, what will success be for you with this book? Um, I chose this topic, well I'd been writing on this topic since the first wave of violence between Buddhists, Buddhist Rakhine and Muslim Rohingya in 2012. Um, and I'd been working with a community of exiled Burmese journalists in northern Thailand for three years prior to that, for an organization called the Democratic Voice of Burma. And, you know, within this exiled Burmese community, which had been, uh, you know, many had fled following an uprising in 1988. They had fled to northern Thailand. Um, many others who crossed over since um, fleeing ethnic conflicts in the borderlands between Thailand and Burma. Um, they had been loosely characterized as the pro-democracy movement. Um, so all of them had in their own particular way agitated against military rule, whether it be as students protesting in the streets, whether it be you know, as journalists seeking to sort of um, undermine the state narrative in Burma by producing independent news, whether it even be, uh, you know, fighters in rebel groups um, who had crossed into Thailand. Um, so I was sort of among this community, working with them. They were close colleagues. And again, like, I suppose, Aung San Suu Kyi, I had assumed that being part of a pro-democracy movement meant that they shared the same vision for a democratic society as I did. 
Um, and so when the first wave of violence hit in 2012, I started to see that a lot of people were espousing quite hateful views about the Rohingya. Um, and, you know, it kind of led me to question why they were doing this, what, what I wasn't seeing or what I hadn't seen um, during my three years reporting on Myanmar, um, or what I, you know, what I might have played down or chosen to ignore. Um, and it was almost that as much as the violence itself that fascinated me and kind of drew me in. Was that bewildering? I mean, I assume you're talking about friends of yours or people you wouldn't expect exactly, to hear yeah. those things from. Yeah, exactly. It was bewildering. It was, you know, it was quite a hard lesson in my own uh, propensity, I think, to project my ideals onto others. Mm. Um, and also quite, you know, it's hugely disappointing. Um, there's always, you know, violence is never black and white, particularly identity-based violence. It's never black and white. Victims and perpetrators change sides regularly. But it was clear from the um, 2012 violence that Rohingya had been the primary targets. Um, and it was Rohingya who had been sort of herded into refugee camps. I think after the first wave of violence in June 2012, close to 100,000 moved to refugee camps, which then became these internment camps um, on the western coast of Myanmar. Um, and then a second wave of violence hit in October, um, which was clearly coordinated. So Buddhist Rakhine mobs attacking Rohingya communities all on the same morning of October the 22nd, 2012, across nine different townships in the state. Um, and, you know, watching that unfold and then seeing these, what I, yeah, what I felt to be quite hateful, regressive opinions being aired about, you know, oh, the Rohingya deserve that, or it's probably better off that they're kept segregated from Buddhists because they're a threat to Buddhists. And by this point, you know, these were very clearly internment camps. They couldn't leave these camps. It was a very sort of desperate situation for this vulnerable minority. Um, and so to watch colleagues, people I'd admired, um, almost turn. Um, yeah, it's very dispiriting, very interesting as well um, as a journalist. And so the book, you know, that really piqued my interest. And the book both looks at the violence itself, but also tries to get into the sort of mental state, collective mental state of society in Myanmar. Mm to try and understand how people could turn, um, how neighbors can become enemies so quickly, what democracy actually means to certain people. Um, yeah, so it's kind of, it looks at various different topics that all sort of came together in that moment. Mm. I think those layers are very apparent in the book because on first reading, I found it, you know, there's a lot of information to take in but when I dipped into it a second time, you get those shades of gray where we've already spoken about Aung San Suu Kyi and how that military junta um, versus, as, as bad versus her as, as good is so simplistic in hindsight. Um, but there's also those large bands of armed Buddhists that you've talked about in there 
also, uh, we don't have those here. <laughs> the, the violence somehow shoehorned into the Buddhist doctrine. Um, did you talk to senior monks about how that was done? Yeah, I mean, this is another issue that, you know, I think confounds a lot of people, confounds me um, still. Um, it's, not, it's not an easy question to answer. Um, you know, I think first you have to remember that people function sort of primarily as human beings, always. Um, and regardless of your, you know, regardless of your uh, politics or your religion or whatever, you're susceptible to the same, I think, fears and anxieties um, that many are. And when you live in a society in which you know, identities have been manipulated so heavily by um, an authority, in this case the military. Um, once you're made to understand that your own belief system is under threat, um, as happened in Myanmar, um, then you're much more susceptible to having the, I suppose, emotions that lend themselves to violent mobilization, to having those activated. <clears throat> and, you know, when I spoke with, with Buddhists, and particularly monks who were members of this movement that arose after the 2012 violence called Mabatha, um, which was the most prominent, um, I suppose, sort of ultra-nationalist monk-led movement, um, they would characterize it as, you know, they'd always distance themselves from any involvement in the violence or, or any sort of accusation that they played a role, that their sermonizing against Muslims um, had led people to attack Muslims. They always sort of distanced themselves from that. Um, but one monk in particular who I quote in the book later on, a guy called Upamuka, um, who is the abbot of a monastery in northern Yangon. He was the one, he was the only person, the only monk who really sort of got down to the sort of granular aspects of, um, you know, his belief. Um, he wasn't speaking for the movement, he wasn't speaking for anyone else, but he said that, you know, if we don't defend our faith now, then Buddhism will be wiped out. If Buddhism is wiped out, then our society will descend into anarchy. And, you know, the message I think he was trying to convey is that violence now prevents more violence or greater violence um, further down the line. Hence, we have this, um, you know, perception or narrative that the violence being waged against Rohingya is legitimate. It's morally just, because if we don't take care of that community, then that community will bring about the ruination of Buddhism. It will remove it from its central position in Myanmar society. If that happens, then Myanmar society collapses because Myanmar society was built on the foundation of sort of Buddhist mm. doctrine, Buddhist ideals. Um, and that's been a line that's been promoted by um, a number of monks in more sort of subtle ways than he explained to me. Um, and that's produced this sort of what seems to be a collective mindset that 
you know, this violence isn't bad, what we're doing isn't bad, what the military is doing by attacking Rohingya, by driving them out, is something that needs to be done because we need to protect our society, we need to defend that border against this expanding Islam. Um, and within, within the Theravada strain of Buddhism, which is predominant in Myanmar, its intention is very important when assessing the sort of merits of an action. So if the intent is to protect Buddhism, then the impacts of the action that's undertaken to defend Buddhism, to protect it, are minimized. Sounds so it's quite Machiavellian. Yeah, yeah. It's this, I suppose, reinterpretation of um, the kind of action consequence or intention action consequence mm. um, spectrum, whatever. Um, and that's why we see monks both being able to sermonize against Buddhism, against, sorry, Islam, to call for boycotts of um, Muslim businesses, to call for segregation, um, to circulate statements as they did in Rakhine State after the 2012 waves of violence that um, sought to evict international NGOs who are assisting Rohingya from the country to expel them because they were accused of, and I quote a statement here that was released by a monk group, um, they're accused of watering poisonous plants, that these NGOs, these aid groups had, by assisting the Rohingya after the violence, by providing aid to the camps, they had effectively kept alive a toxic presence in the state. And so, therefore, those NGOs, like the Rohingya themselves, should be evicted from the country. So you've got a bit of distance now from this you know, Not really, no. okay. <laughs> <laughs> who in all your research sticks with you? Do you have a personal story of somebody who you you just can't forget? Yeah, um, but he's the guy who sort of finishes the book, and I don't want to give away the ending. Um, it's a monk who, you know, I think it's become. Uh, depending on how this story is reported, um, there's a perception that I think has grown up, particularly amongst you know, people interested in Myanmar, that the monks are bad now. We had what we thought were good monks who marched in 2007 in the so-called Saffron Revolution. Um, those monks have turned. But I think it's always important to remember that this faction within the monastic community in Myanmar which has been agitating against um, Muslims is just a very tiny minority. But they've become very vocal because they've been given these platforms. Um, and because they've been given so much exposure by the likes of me, international journalists reporting on the country. Um, but the guy who I finish with in the book, um, he's a monk who lives in the town of Mektila, which is um, just south of Mandalay in central Myanmar. He's called Ui Tokta. And he, uh, during a wave of violence in Miktila in 2013, which was the first sort of major eruption of violence in central Myanmar after it, um, after Rakhine State descended into chaos, um, he sheltered both Buddhists and Muslims in his monastery. And so the violence had begun in March 2013. Um, 
it was triggered by a fight in a gold shop between a Muslim owner and Buddhist customers. Then word quickly spread by monks um, that a Muslim had attacked a Buddhist. Crowds gathered outside this gold shop, started to attack it. And then by the next morning, mobs of armed men had arrived on buses from outside of the town. Um, alighted from the buses in town, they were armed, they found, you know, they walked to the Muslim quarters and set about attacking Muslims um, and torching Muslim um, properties. During that violence, um, several Buddhists started to walk from their neighborhood in central Meiktila out to this monastery on the edge of Meiktila, where Uwe Tokta was the abbot. And they had first gone to a police station. The police station said, the people at the police station said, we can't look after you. We haven't got any orders to look after people. So they pushed them back out into the melee outside. Um, and then they walked to his monastery. He let them in. Then Muslims started to get word that a monk was sheltering um, victims of the violence. So they arrived too. And I think by the third or fourth day, he had something like, 700 or 800, um, both Buddhists and Muslims, sheltering in his monastery. And he fed them. Um, several women gave birth in the monastery. Uh, you know, several people died. And he, I met him several years ago, and he, you know, he reminded me of the sort of um, humanist qualities that I think are at the core of Buddhism um, and that seem to have been forgotten by a number of monks. Um, you know, he sheltered these people. He saw it as his duty to shelter them. Um, a mob of um, men arrived outside the monastery, I think on the third day, um, began rattling on the gate, said, we hear that you're sheltering Muslims inside. Give them to us. We want them. Um, he refused. His fellow monks joined him. They sort of stood either side of this gate, the mob on one side, the monks on the other side. Um, and they refused to let this mob in. And, you know, he potentially saved hundreds of lives on that day. Um, and I ended the book with him because, you know, just because I think he serves as a reminder of um, the fact that, you know, these aren't sort of, the monastic community isn't one monolithic entity in the country that because there are a few bad monks who have become very public, become very vocal, it doesn't mean all sort of follow their paths. Mm. So if we could get you to look into the future a little bit. The military's still got 25% of the parliamentary seats, is that right? Yeah. And the constitution allows them to call a state of emergency and take over altogether if they need to. Um, it's a very precarious position for democracy in Myanmar. What do you think is going to happen, both to uh, democracy in Myanmar generally, but also to the Rohingya in the remain in Rakhine State? Democracy in Myanmar. Um, it's, it's difficult to know where things are going to go um, politically. There's this... When people, you know, analyse Su Chi's position, um, you know, there seems to be quite a popular belief that if she were to really, that the reason she's remaining silent um, is because she doesn't want to upset the military, 
if she upsets the military, then the military could turn on her, stage a coup, force her from power. Um, but that doesn't sort of bear up to any, uh, you know, sort of empirical understanding of what's happening. The military is very happy in its position. Um, it, you know, it wrote the script for the transition. It's locked in its political interests. It's locked in its economic interests. It has no desire, I don't think, to take more power. It's still the sort of preeminent political institution in the country, even though it's sort of functioning more behind the scenes now. Um, there's no real reason for it to stage a coup to force Suu Kyi from power. Um, because, you know, she's become a foil for its actions. She's the one that's attracted a huge amount of scrutiny, a huge amount of criticism, of blame for what's happening. Um, yet it's the military that's spearheading this campaign of ethnic cleansing. Um, so it would have no real mm. incentive um, to rock the boat. So my sense is that, you know, things will probably just continue as they are up until 2020, which is the next elections. The power of the, or at least the influence, the popularity of the National League for Democracy, which is Suu Kyi's party, is starting to become a bit more shaky, I think. Um, because, you know, these, uh, she's been accused, or her party's been accused of sort of going too soft on the rights of Buddhists, being too strong in universal human rights, i.e. rights for Muslims as well. Um, there have been several protests. She hasn't been able to bring to an end long-running ethnic conflicts in other parts of the country, which she made a priority upon coming to office. Um, and that's massively de dented her popularity. So I think come the 2020, 2020 elections, they'll still win. She'll still be de facto leader um, if she chooses to be. Um, but other parties may sort of come up um, and you know, strengthen their numbers in parliament. Onto the Rohingya, you know, you have to locate what's happened since August in a process that's been going on for decades that's deliberately sought to weaken um, the position of the Rohingya to make their lives, their existence in Myanmar more and more tenuous. Um, you know, we talk of this as, we talk of what's happened since August as the culmination of this campaign, um, which may be true. That may be the best case scenario because were it not the culmination, then it would suggest that there's more violence to come. And that's my fear. There are still something like 300,000 Rohingya in Myanmar, in Western Rakhine State. Um, they inhabit either these internment camps um, around the state capital of Sitwe, from which they're not allowed to leave. They cannot leave these camps. Um, or they're confined to their villages further north in the state. And since the first wave of violence, which I've spoken about in 2012, this new kind of apparatus of control has come into being in Western Myanmar that places incredibly tight restrictions on the movement of Rohingya. Um, and I gave a reading a couple of days ago um, at this festival in which I told of a story of a man that I met, I think it would have been late 2015, early 2016, um, who lived in one of these villages. And he was, uh, he's Rohingya, and his wife had 
given birth. His wife had become pregnant back in 2014. So two years after the violence, two years after this um, almost apartheid-like system had been implemented in Western Myanmar. Um, and during prior pregnancies, his wife had been able to um, go and give birth in a hospital about 10 minutes from that village. The new security restrictions that came into being after 2012 meant that by the time of her fourth pregnancy um, in 2014, she was barred from entering that hospital um, because Rohingya had been barred from entering the town more generally. Um, and that meant she had to catch a bus, uh, sorry, take an ambulance three hours in the opposite direction. Um, she arrived at the hospital. Uh, the baby was the wrong way round. Um, she didn't make it through. Um, and there's more to the story, which is sort of detailed in the book. But it's become um, a state where this hugely uh, racialized system of healthcare has developed um, so that even Rohingya who aren't inside these camps um, cannot go to local hospitals. There's only one adequately equipped hospital in the state that's willing to take them. And there, they get treated on wards segregated from Buddhists. Um, and so we have this community of 700,000 newly displaced Rohingya in Bangladesh. Um, they're obviously you know, taking the lion's share of media attention because of the frightful conditions they're in and because of what preceded their exodus from the country. But we still have this incredibly vulnerable community of Rohingya inside Myanmar. Um, and violence, you know, along identity lines has the effect of sort of sharpening group divides. Um, and so with each wave of violence that's hit the state, community identities have become sharpened, um, these fissures have grown wider, there's no interaction at all between um, Rakhine and Rohingya. Um, my sense is that, you know, the the lives of those Rohingya who remain in the, state are in the state are incredibly precarious. Were there to be another trigger event, like another attack by Rohingya militants on police posts, which sparked um, the August violence, um, then the military would once again sweep in and start to clear out those Rohingya communities that remain. Um, and so this idea that, you know, Rohingya can be repatriated from Bangladesh anytime soon, I think is incredibly ill thought out. Um, were they to return, then their, you know, the precariousness of their security situation would be, mm. you know, I think deeply problematic, deeply mm. worrying. So this is, this is a weighty book. We've got Fergal Keane from the BBC writing, there's no other writer on this topic with the same moral courage and intellectual insight. So thumbs up. <laughs> Did you wrestle with walking that line between intimidating your readers and accessibility? Because presumably the reason why you wrote this book is because you want as many people as possible to know about this conflict. Yeah. Intimidating my readers in what sort of sense? Just the general reader in a bookshop looking for a book, pick it up, go, oh, this looks amazing, but am I going to understand it? Right, okay. Well, my publishers, my publishers told me to write it for everyone from your armchair reader who's got a passing interest in the country to, um, you know, someone who goes to a university library. So people have a sort of studious interest in it, i.e. academics and, um, you know, casual readers, which was 
a kind of impossible task, I thought. Um, and so, the way I kind of said about it was, you know, I, I had, it's got sort of four components, I guess. One is, you know, my own reflections on the situation. Um, and, you know, my, you know, my reflections, my reporting, the history, but also some sort of, you know, armchair analysis of what's going on and trying to sort of think through some of the theory on inter-ethnic violence, religious violence, um, you know, democratization and so on. Because um, I thought that might tick the boxes um, presented to me by the publishers. Whether it did, I don't know. Um, but, I mean, the problem, the problem with writing a book like this is that, you know, I'm an outsider. This, this whole story is primarily about identity and belonging, like very deeply personal um, concepts. And, you know, I bowl up as a foreigner, um, particularly a British foreigner, and because of the legacy of British colonialism in the country, um, that's sort of a problem in itself. And so when I began writing in 2012 on the um, Rakhine Rohingya violence, you know, I was accused of being a kind of neo-colonialist or a terrorist sympathizer. Um, you know, it's the kind of story that excites these very powerful emotions. Um, and so the main concern, I think, was presenting something that wasn't, you know, that didn't paint this black and white picture that one side is good, the other side is bad. Um, I try to sort of explore the nuances um, in the story, of which there are many, um, and try and give it a sort of broader picture than I have in, that I've been able to in writing, you know, magazine articles. And I stupidly, naively thought that it would be like writing, you know, an extended, long-form piece of journalism, and it definitely wasn't. Um, it was quite a horrible experience. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your very impressive book and your generosity here on stage today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.